Welcome to the Fire Talk with that Fire Geek 921 podcast, a show that discusses topics of concern to the fire investigation community. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Fire Talk with that Fire Geek 921 podcast. Uh, my name's Tim, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, have a listen. Again, the website is www.firegeek921.com. Uh, you can send me an email at tim at firegeek921.com. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Uh, it was nice seeing some of you uh, at the ITC in Jacksonville back in April, where I debuted the podcast. I received a lot of feedback, and I just want to uh, apologize for the delay in getting episode two out. Uh, there were a couple of things out of my control. There were some things in my control. Nobody wants to hear why it took me six months to put out episode two. But the good news is I finally got Apple Podcast figured out. And so the podcast can now be found on Apple Podcast. I really want you to let me know what you think about the podcast, good and bad, mostly bad. I want this to be a success, but if nobody cares about this podcast, then I will uh, move on to other projects that I have an interest in and uh, chalk this up as a great learning experience. So here we are, episode two. Uh, as you recall, the first episode I talked about uh, was the the need to actually remove fire debris from a from a scene from a fire scene in order to make a a cause an origin and cause determination. This episode, we're going to talk about fire investigation safety, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the culture and what it takes to affect or to actually change an organization's culture. It's now known or acknowledged, I guess. I guess we've always known that fire environments weren't good for firefighters, but we've now acknowledged that fire environments are causing cancer in firefighters. Remember, we all used to take our night hitch pin to the dorm. And now we don't do that anymore. And in 1996, uh, NIOSH and ATF studied off-gassing at fire scenes after the fire was extinguished and identified uh, chemicals that were present after fires were extinguished. In 2013, Davis and others published their findings of their research regarding ATF investigators. The name of the article was Evaluation of a Bladder Cancer Cluster in a Population of Criminal Investigators with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, Part 2, Association of Cancer Risk in Fire Scene Investigation. And essentially what that article says is that white males with work histories working in post-blast and post-fire had a statistically significant elevated risk of bladder cancer compared to white males in the same agency that didn't have a post-fire, post-blast work history. And of those white males that had a work history working post-fire, post-blast, the ATF CFIs had the greatest increased risk of bladder cancer. Many of you probably are aware that back in 2018, the IAAI put out a safety white paper if you haven't seen that, I would encourage you to go find it. Uh, it's easy to find. Go to the IAAI's website, which is www.firearson.com. And on that homepage, across the top, you click on Publications and Resources, and then Fire Investigator Resources. 
and then health and safety. And in there, you have the fire investigator health and safety best practices dated June 15th, 2018. And there's also a fire investigator respiratory protection fact sheet and a best practices guide sheet available as well. And I went to that website, didn't log in as a member, and I was able to access all that information. So I believe the IAAI provides that without uh, membership. So I'm going to talk about the culture later on. Before we start talking about fire investigator safety and steps that you can take, and just a refresher more than anything on, on safety, I just want to say a couple of things up front. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, but please don't allow peer pressure to influence your decision-making. And that goes back to the culture of the organization or that you're in or the culture of the fire investigation industry as a whole. But if there's one thing that I've learned as I've aged is that you really need to worry about or care about yourself first. And if you are in a situation where you think you ought to be wearing a specific level of PPE and nobody else is, well, that's their decision to make and and you need to be true to yourself. And so if you want to put on a respirator, put on a respirator, even if you're the only one there that's wearing one. I have allowed peer pressure to influence my decision making at fire scenes. I was wearing a half mask respirator one day. It was a fairly large scene exam. And I was the only one wearing one. And there were a couple of snide comments made, not specifically to me, but around. And at the first break, I took my respirator off and I never put it back on. And unfortunately, I've also been on the other side of that coin and made snide comments or little jabs here and there to other investigators that were wearing a level of PPE that was more protective than what I had on. And looking back on that, those are not my proudest moments. But it's something that I did, and it's something that I, hopefully, or that I've learned from. So who's talking about safety? Well, as you might expect, uh, the NFPA 1033, which is the standard for professional qualifications for fire investigators, uh, the 2014 edition, talks a little bit about safety. And in section 4.1.3, quote, because fire investigators are required to perform activities in adverse conditions, site safety assessments shall be completed on all scenes in regional and national safety standards shall be followed and included in organizational policies and procedures, end quote. And in the annex information for section 4.1.3, it says, for additional information concerning safety requirements or training, the applicable local, state, or federal occupational safety and health regulations in the IFSTA publication, Safety at Scenes of Fire and Related Incidents. NFPA 921, the Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigations, 2017 edition, also talks about safety. And it talks about safety more extensively than 1033. Chapter 13 is dedicated to safety in NFPA 921. 13.1.2 talks about health and safety programs. And in there, it, it mentions that 
OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has identified five critical elements that are successful in the reduction of workplace injuries, illnesses, and fatalities. And those five elements are that the first is that management has a commitment and employee participation, that there are hazard and risk assessments completed, that hazard prevention and control is undertaken, that safety and health training and education occurs, and that there's a long-term commitment to the health and safety of all involved. So section 13.2, general fire scene safety, talks about investigating the scene alone, which you should never do, but living in the real world, we all understand that that is very difficult to achieve at times. Talks about investigator fatigue and how the more tired you become, you start losing motor skills and uh, working above or below grade, working around mechanized equipment, safety of bystanders, status of the suppression activities. You want to have a first aid kit and emergency notification numbers available and an emergency notification signal. And we all know fire scenes are hazardous. There are physical hazards, tripping, running into things. How many of us have hit our heads on things hanging around in scenes? Uh, Structural stability hazards. Uh, I know of a private fire investigator who went into a structure a period of time after the public sector had been finished. The public sector was all over that building and nothing happened. And the private investigator took one step in and went right to the basement and was stuck for a, a period of time. Electrical hazards. We all have stories about thinking that the power had been disconnected to the building and finding out that it hadn't been. Chemical hazards, biological hazards, mechanical hazards, and other hazards that are unique to the occupancy. The one that comes to mind are medical office buildings with x-rays, so there's radiological hazards. And in order to better identify all those hazards, and many of us do that as we're getting out of our vehicle, uh, we start doing a scene assessment in our own mind based on experience that we've had. We understand that a single family dwelling provides different hazards than a commercial occupancy, which provides different hazards than an industrial occupancy. And so we sort of do a hazard and risk assessment informally every time that we go to a fire scene. We identify the hazards. We look at the physical hazards. We identify structural hazards. We look to see if the power's been turned off or if the power hasn't been turned off. Has it been isolated? Is there evidence that there's been a temporary electrical service installed? And for the most part, I always assume that the power is on, even when I'm pretty confident that the power is off. We look for chemical hazards, we look for biological hazards, and we look for mechanical hazards. And that's not necessarily written down into a a formal hazard and risk assessment, but it's things that we all do or we should be doing in our mind. And after we've identified all these hazards, we determine the risk of the hazard and what we need to do to control the hazard, whether that be administrative controls where we just aren't going to go there, or we engineer controls for structural instability. Do we shore the building up? And then we select proper PPE and we use it properly. I'm going to spend just a little bit of time talking about exposure to hazards. And there are different types of exposure effects. There's a local effect, 
which occurs at the scene, could be burns, could be black soot in your nose, come into contact with chemicals. Uh, the systemic effect occurs at the scene. It could be soot in the lungs, chemicals absorbed into your blood. So the roots of exposure are inhalation, absorption, ingestion, injection. And NFPA 921 also includes ocular exposure. And there are different levels of exposure. There's acute, which is sudden and right immediate and right then. There's chronic, which is a response to an acute level over time. Cumulative, which is what occurs over the course of a career. And then there's a latent latency period, which is the time of exposure to the onset of symptoms. So we all have or have issued to us or have access to personal protective equipment. And every organization is a little different. And I'm just going to say, follow your organization or your company's policies and procedures. This podcast is not designed to get you in trouble, make you do things that are contrary to your policies and procedures. So there's safety clothing and equipment, uh, shoes and boots, gloves and helmet, uh, eye protection. You want to cover your skin. And when you're all done, you want to make sure that you decontaminate your personal protective equipment. And some of the things that we've done in the past are things that we should stop doing. Stop placing your dirty gear in the passenger compartment of your vehicle, open and exposed. If you must place it in the passenger compartment, seal it in bags or containers. If you have access to an extractor, use it to wash your gear. If you don't have access to an extractor, take your gear to a commercial laundry. Let them know what it is that you're washing. Washing your gear at home is an absolute last resort. But if you must wash your personal protective equipment at home, run it in a cycle all by itself and then run an, run an empty cycle through your washing machine with soap so that hopefully the particulates and contaminants that were present on your PPE are cycled through the washing machine. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about culture. And culture is defined by Merriam-Webster as the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution or organization. The set of values, conventions, or social practices associated with a particular field, activity, or societal characteristic. And if you're familiar with culture in the literature, there are a lot of people who think they have an understanding of culture and how to affect organizational cultural change. And I'm just going to hit on a couple of them and then talk about an article that Mike Donahue wrote a while back that talked specifically about fire investigation industry. In 1990, Husted and others outlined seven characteristics to culture. The first was that culture is holistic and involves a large group of people. I'm not sure it has to be large, but it has to involve a group of people. Culture is historically related and is conveyed through traditions and customs. How many of us have sat over a cup of coffee with our peers and talked about how we do things. Culture is inert and difficult to change. I'm going to leave that right there. Culture is socially constructed and is a human product and shared by people belonging to groups. Different groups have different cultures. Culture is difficult to quantify and it is better studied qualitatively. 
Anthropological terms are used to characterize culture, a myth, rituals, and symbols. And culture is more about ways of thinking, values, and ideas of things rather than the concrete objective and visible part of an organization. And I found in a blog online by Alex Potrovev how to change your company culture. And he lists out that first, there needs to be a level of awareness. You need to understand what needs to be changed. It has to be direction. You have to decide what is to be changed. You have to execute the change. And then you have to validate the change. And in a 1996 book called Leading Change in an Eight-Step Process, Carter discusses that you need to establish a sense of urgency. You need to create a guiding coalition. You need to develop a vision and strategy. You need to communicate the change vision. You need to empower the broad-based action. You need to generate short-term wins. You need to consolidate gains in producing more change. And you need to anchor new approaches into the culture. Heracles in 2001, in an article, an ethnographic study of culture in the context of organizational change, published in the Journal of Applied Behavioral Sciences, talks about a five-step process. And he works off from a cultural web that was developed by Johnson in 1992. And Johnson's cultural web, if you think about it as a spider web, and in the center, you would have the paradigm, which is the change that needs to occur. And then around that are the rituals and the routines, the symbols, the power structure, the organizational structure, the control systems that are in place, and the stories and myths associated with that culture. And the five-step process that Heracles weaves into this cultural web is that you need to have a situational awareness. You have to an analyze the situation. You have to have policy and strategy making. You have to identify and understand the organizational implications. You have to manage the change, and then you need to monitor and evaluate that change. In the April 2007 edition of Firehouse Magazine, Michael Donahue outlines a 12-step program that fire investigators can use or should use to change the industry culture. The first step is that you need to admit organizational and behavioral changes needed. If you're not going to admit that what we do is not right, then change is likely not going to occur. You need to seek assistance and support. Essentially, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. As we've talked about, there are hundreds of people who have written about cultural change. You need to turn the problem around, go from bad behaviors to good behaviors. You need to take a critical look at your safety sense. Do you really see the need and or the benefit of change? You need to admit your wrongs. Be true to yourself. Do you really do all that you can be to be safe? Be ready to change. Although that's very similar to a critical look at your safety sense, it's different. There's a difference between acknowledging the need to change and actually changing. You want to assess your shortcomings and deficiencies. You want to continually evaluate and make necessary changes. I'm as guilty of anybody of that. I'll wear my respirator today and I'll pat myself on the back and then tomorrow I won't wear it. You want to make a list of the hazards you face and plan to eliminate or reduce the danger. You want to acknowledge the potential harm. Take that bad decision and share it to better inform others. You want to institute a personal inventory. Accept responsibility and be accountable to yourself for the decisions that you make. Continue to train and educate yourself and help others to make the change. 
You know, while I was researching for this podcast, I found a website. It's www.firescenesafety.com. I believe it's Michael Donahue's website. On the left-hand side, there's a documents menu. And in there, there are hundreds of documents available that talk about fire investigator safety and safety in general. And I'd encourage you to go to that. Again, that's www.firescenesafety.com, documents menu on the left. So in closing, I'm just going to say that if you always take scene safety, the proper use of PPE and the appropriate steps to decontaminate your gear, then I applaud you. And I suggest to you that you are in the small minority within the fire investigation community that does that. However, if you're like me and don't always follow what we are beginning to understand our industry best practices, then let me ask the following. And I've asked myself these questions. Do you see the need to change? And if you do see the need to change, are you going to change your habits? Are you going to take an extra minute to size up the scene hazards? Are you going to use personal protective equipment? And are you, after you finish using your personal protective equipment, are you going to properly decontaminate your gear so that it limits your exposure and your family's exposure? The culture of your organization can be difficult to change. It's easy to continue to go along to get along. It's very difficult. And I understand to be the person that suggests change. Are you going to continue to work to educate your peers? And are you going to try to get buy-in from your peers? And maybe more importantly or less importantly, are you going to get buy-in from management and from your peers? And how are we going to change the culture of the industry as a whole? Are you going to participate in opportunities to change the industry? I know in Florida, there's a committee through the Florida chapter that's working on safety uh, at the international level. The IAAI has a safety committee. Are you going to become a change agent? So I routinely, and this is difficult to admit, but I routinely do not follow best practices when it comes to personal protective equipment and scene surveys. I also want to call out those that wrongly use peer pressure to encourage others to make bad choices. If you don't want to use personal protective equipment or you don't want to be in personal protective equipment to the same level as other people that are working on the same scenes as you, then that that's on you. But don't use your position as somebody's peer to make them make bad choices. And to those that stand by and watch that peer pressure without speaking up, I challenge you to speak up. And do you want to be a change agent? Or do you want to continue to go along with many of our peers that blindly continue to do the wrong thing because it's the culture of the industry? We do need to change the culture. And I believe that cultural change begins with a discussion acknowledging that change needs to be made. If we as an industry don't see the need to change, then no amount of committee work or publications or studies or research is going to make that happen. Again, I want to thank you for listening to episode two of the Fire Talk with that Fire Geek 921 podcast, www.firegeek921.com. You can email me, tim at firegeek921.com. And again, thank you very much and be safe. The Fire Talk with that Fire Geek 921 podcast is a production of McCart Cove Consulting, LLC, copyright 2019.
The views and opinions expressed in the Fire Talk with at Fire Geek 921 podcast are those of the host and of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of their employers and of institutions or organizations that they may or may not be associated with in their professional or personal capacity. Any content provided is not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Thank you for listening.